you would please open your Bibles to the book of Lamentations and chapter 5. Page 690 in the provided Bibles. So Lamentations is made up of Five chapters, five poems of lament. They speak about the destruction of Jerusalem and the Jewish people being carried away into exile in Babylon. Very difficult chapters to read. A lot of death and devastation and loss and not a lot of hope throughout this book. And we see that again in these words of Lamentations 5, which are also the living word of God to his people today. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill The boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless... You have utterly rejected us, and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, on the 17th of December 2010, Muhammad Bawazizi, a man from Tunisia, set himself on fire as a protest 
against government harassment. He later died of his injuries. But his protest led to further protests in the nation of Tunisia and eventually the overthrow of the Tunisian government. And what happened in Tunisia spilled across the border and became protests that have led to either civil war or regime change in Algeria, Egypt, Oman, Jordan, Libya, Iraq, Yemen, Bahrain, Kuwait, and Syria. So the protest act of one man is now commonly accepted as the moment that began what has come to be known as the Arab Spring. And since then, according to United Nations figures, more than 250,000 people have been killed. 11 million have been forced from their homes. 4 million are living as refugees in other countries. And 65,000 people have been arrested by government forces and are now missing. And included in those numbers are a group of people known as Assyrian Christians. They live in several of those countries. According to some estimates, 60% of all Assyrian Christians in Iraq have fled their homeland because of ISIS persecution. One church leader said, it is genocide, ethnic cleansing. They are killing our people in the name of Allah and telling people that anyone who kills a Christian will go straight to heaven. They have burned churches. They have burned very old books. They are occupying our churches and converting them into mosques. He said, our people fled their villages and houses with nothing but the clothes on their backs. It is an exodus. Christians are walking on foot in Iraq's searing summer heat towards the Kurdish cities, the sick, the elderly, infants and pregnant women among them. They are facing a human catastrophe. Well, the human catastrophe that is happening in the Middle East today is half a world away from you and me. About as close as we get to it is a news story sandwiched between news of another silver medal at the Olympic Games or Labour National debating interest rates or something like that. So if it is hard for us to really understand the human catastrophe that is happening in the Middle East today, well, it's near on impossible for us to imagine the human catastrophe that took place 2,600 years ago in Jerusalem and the Babylonian captivity of that time. But if you have been here for the short series of sermons on the book of Lamentations, then I trust you will agree that the author of the book has done his level best to help us get some idea of the scale of the human catastrophe that took place at that time. 
Four chapters of horrific description of devastation and death. But just in case we are not quite there yet, with this, the last of the five poems, the author makes one last attempt to capture the horror, not only with the words, but also with the structure of his poem. I've noted this in the bulletin a couple of times already, but each chapter of Lamentations is a complete poem. And each poem is made up of 22 stanzas of poetry, and this is because there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So verse 1 in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 begin with the Hebrew A, and verse 2 with the Hebrew B, and so on through each of those chapters. Well, here in chapter 5, we still have 22 stanzas of poetry, as you can see with the 22 verses, but the pattern is not followed. Each stanza does not begin with the next letter of the alphabet. And in addition, the poems have gone from having three-line stanzas down to having two-line stanzas, and now we have just one-line stanzas. Sometimes we talk about something that, it, that is without rhyme or reason. Have you ever heard that expression? Uh, we use it to describe something that is just makes no sense. Now, this person was behaving like that without rhyme or reason. Well, that would be a good name for this poem. Without rhyme or reason, question mark. In terms of how it is structured compared to the first four poems, in terms of its short staccato descriptions of violence and, and misery, and in terms of its ending, which just is so uncertain, the question of the author seems to be, Lord, is all that we have suffered without rhyme or reason? Why has this happened to us? Is there any hope for us? And you can be sure that these are the same questions being asked today by Assyrian Christians. Why has this happened to us? Will this ever end? Is there any hope for us? And every Christian who experiences a crisis or a trial or hardship asks these questions as well. Has God rejected me? What is the purpose of my suffering? Is there any hope for me? So what answers do we get to questions like these from Lamentations chapter 5? Well, while the first four poems have largely been description, this last one is in the form of a prayer. And that becomes immediately obvious in verse 1 as we see that it is addressed to the Lord. And it begins with a call to remember. The poet is asking the Lord to remember what has happened in Jerusalem. And that suggests that some time has gone by since the initial events. The poet and the people, as they continue to languish, in exile, are wondering if maybe the Lord has forgotten them in their distress. 
If you read through the book of Judges, earlier in the Old Testament, you encounter the following pattern. Again and again it reads like this. In those days, the people of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord by worshipping this false god or that false god. So the Lord gave them over into their hands of their enemies, the Midianites or the Amorites or the Philistines, sometimes for seven years, eight years, 18 years, 40 years even in the case of the Philistines. But here is what you always read next. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. And then we are introduced to Ehud or Gideon or to Samson, etc. So the author of Lamentations, who probably knew his Jewish history well, with each passing year, no rescue, no restoration, no redeemer, is concerned that God has forgotten his people. So he reminds the Lord again of all that has happened. In verse 2, we read about occupation. The book of Joshua records the very early days of the people of Israel arriving in the promised land. And the first thing that happened was the land was divided up and each of the families and tribes was given a permanent inheritance, symbolizing the, the faithfulness of the Lord. That is your piece of land. But all that has gone as the poet reminds the Lord that strangers now inherit the land. Verse 3 speaks of bereavement. One of the ways that God demonstrated his love towards his people is that he gave special laws for the care of orphans and widows. Well, the poet is saying, Lord, we're all orphans and widows. We've all lost loved ones. Verse 4 speaks of poverty. Jerusalem and Judah had once been places of abundant and free water and wood, but now these basics of life have to be bought and paid for. Verse 5 speaks of harassment. The people are constantly pursued and, and unable to settle down to the point that they have become bone-weary. Verse 6 speaks of dependence. What is described here is the fact that those who remain in the land now have to get their bread from Egypt or from Assyria because they can't produce their own food. Verse 7 speaks of generational guilt. Such is the weight of the catastrophe that these people have suffered, they realize that they are also being punished for the sins of their fathers, the sins of previous generations. Now we have to be careful here to remember God's special relationship with his Old Testament people. He ruled them directly as their government, if you will, and he ruled them according to the moral, ceremonial, and civil law. There may be today 
consequences of sins that pass from one generation to the next. We can think, think of things like fetal alcohol syndrome or a father who gambles away the family's money and now the family is poverty-stricken, uh, perhaps for a generation or more. But it would be wrong of us today when we encounter severe suffering to assume that our parents must have done something seriously wrong. You might remember in the days of Jesus that they brought him a man born blind and they asked him if the blindness was his fault or his parents' fault. And Jesus said, neither. He was born blind that the power of God might be revealed and Jesus healed him of his blindness. So what we're reading about here in verse 7 is a specific situation in the history of God's Old Testament people. Verse 8 speaks about humiliation. The people who remain in Jerusalem are ruled over by slaves. How degrading for those who once used to be a military powerhouse in their own right. Verse 9 speaks of famine. Verse 10 speaks about something as severe sunburn. Verse 11 speaks about the horror of rape in times of war. Verse 12 speaks of execution. The rulers of Judah had been hung up or impaled. Verse 13 speaks of the hard work of forced slavery and utter exhaustion. Now, congregation, can you get a sense of the human catastrophe that is being described in these verses? Can you, can you feel the desperate sorrow and, and misery and, and anguish that drips off the page from these words? The poet has chosen these words to help us feel this moment. And this is reinforced with verses 14 through 18, which describes the emotional anguish of the poet and his people. There is no music. There is no joy. There is no dancing. There is the sickness of heart and a complete barrenness and, and desolation. Jerusalem is destroyed and life is utterly miserable. It should not be possible for us to read these words and be unaffected by the sheer weight of this human catastrophe. Some of you, I'm sure, during this past week saw that little image of that I think four or five-year-old Syrian boy pulled out of that bombed building, sitting there in the ambulance covered in blood and soot. You can't see an image like that and not be affected by the human catastrophe that is taking place over there. What we need to remember, though, is that the poet is speaking these words first and, first and foremost to God as a prayer. He's reminding God of the suffering of himself 
and the people. And here is the first point of application as we consider the power of this prayer. You see, in Judges 10, where we have one of those descriptions of those cycles of disobedience that I was telling you about earlier, we read this. And the Lord could bear Israel's misery no longer. Or literally, his soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. They are beautiful words. The God we pray to is a God who is grieved by the misery of you and me. The God of the Bible is not some remote, unfeeling, unmoved, capricious God like the Allah of Islam. This God is grieved by the misery of his people. And in case you are thinking to yourself that Lamentations has made a point of explaining to us that God is the one who brought this judgment upon the people of Jerusalem. Let me remind you that we thought about this earlier in the sermon series when we looked at Hebrews 12. Because Hebrews 12 explains that the Lord does discipline His people. Do you remember the language there? The Lord disciplines the one He loves. God is treating you as His sons. Even if our pain and suffering come because of God's fatherly discipline, it comes ultimately because He loves us. And He wants us to grow in our love for Him and in our trust of Him. So believer, in your suffering, pray to God. Turn to God because He is the only one who can bring relief from suffering and distress. And remember that when you pray to God, you are praying to your Father in heaven who grieves for the misery of His children. But taking note of verse 16 where the poet says, Woe to us, for we have sinned. Make sure that you are quick to turn to the Lord and confess your sins. We considered this just a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the petition of the Lord's Prayer, Forgive us our sins. All of our sins have been dealt with on the cross of Calvary through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ It is finished. Hallelujah. But we continue to sin in the here and now. And our sin brings, is unpleasing in the sight of God. So we should be eager to turn to Him often and express our sorrow and our contrition and to speak of our resolve not to sin. 
But as we come to the end of this prayer poem, we are reminded that God is also sovereign and that his timing is not our timing. In chapter 3 of Lamentations, we took note of a moment when the poet was utterly without hope. He was empty of happiness. He described his soul as bowed down within him, but in the very next verse we read this. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The poet preached to himself. He reminded himself of the great truths of God's grace and mercy and love and compassion and patience. Well, here he does the same. But while the words from chapter 3 have become a very well-known hymn, it's pretty obvious why the words here at the end of chapter 5 have not become a very well-known hymn. The start is bright, but you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. It is a declaration of God's sovereign power and his constant rule over all things. But then we read, why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? And if you are familiar with your Bible, you will hear in those words an echo of the why prayers of the Psalms and an echo of the why prayer of the prophet Habakkuk. Some of you, I'm sure, will be hearing an echo of your own why prayers which you are raising to the Lord right now. Well, the Spirit of the Lord has caused prayers like these to be recorded in Scripture so we know that in times of spiritual suffering and and physical distress, we ought to go to the Lord with our why prayers so long as we pray to our Father in heaven. That's why we read Philippians 4 earlier in the service. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. But the poet continues in verse 21. Restore us to Yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless You have utterly rejected us and You remain exceedingly angry with us. In my research for the sermon, I learned that Jewish people who read this part of Scripture at home or in the synagogue today never finish with verse 21. Uh, uh, with verse 22. They always go back and read verse 21 again. Isn't that interesting? They will not let this book end on that note of uncertainty. But with that fact in view, let's just review Jewish history for a moment. What we have seen as we have worked through this book 
is that it is pointing forward to two things in particular. Firstly, the return from exile, but ultimately the second or the coming of the promised one, the Messiah. The coming of the Lord Jesus and his great work of salvation. And we know that the Lord Jesus did bring the Jewish people back to Jerusalem. We're going to learn about that in the next several weeks as we turn to the book of Haggai. Jerusalem and the temple were rebuilt. But the glory presence of the Lord did not come back down to live in the Holy of Holies. And the nation was ruled not by Jewish kings, but by the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and then the Romans. And there were no prophets, no direct word of the Lord for 400 years. And the same problems of immorality, idolatry and injustice carried on. And then finally, the long promised Messiah was born. The one whom the people had been waiting for for 2,000 years came among them. And what did these people who had sinned and who, who had been punished with destruction and exile for their sin and who cried out to the Lord for a deliverer and for restoration due to Messiah Jesus? They rejected him and they had him crucified on the cross because they would not have him to rule over them. They did not learn the lesson that the human catastrophe described in Lamentations should have taught them. They remained a stubborn and rebellious people. So what Lamentations reveals is that man is really, really bad. You and me, We are really, really bad. And God is exceedingly or really, really angry with our sin. But punishing us so that we learn a lesson doesn't solve our problem. Because our sin just clings to us and it is so all-consuming in terms of who we are. So what God has done instead is to be exceedingly angry towards Jesus so that he can be exceedingly gracious toward us. He chose to treat Jesus in a way that he did not deserve so that he was free to not deal with us according to our sins. He made it possible for us to become his children, not through a human catastrophe that we have to suffer, but through a divine catastrophe that Jesus had to suffer. So I hope that what you have learned from Lamentations is that God is a judging God. He cannot ignore sin. And he will condemn unrepentant sinners to the fire and the agony and the loneliness and the misery of an eternity in hell. 
But God is also a loving God, a gracious God, a merciful God, a patient God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have eternal life. So the last word of Lamentations, the place where we must end, is that God's grace in Jesus Christ is really, really powerful. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God in heaven, we thank you for the gift of the book of Lamentations. We thank you for these five poems, difficult to read in many respects, but so necessary and so true, and so full of the gospel. We pray this morning for our Assyrian brothers and sisters in Christ We ask that you would keep them from the hands of those who would persecute them. But in their suffering and loss, we thank you for Jesus who said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So give them comfort, give them peace, and give them courage, O Lord. But Lord, there are also some among us today who are suffering. And so we thank you for Jesus who said, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And Lord, there may be some among us today who do not know Jesus as Savior and Lord. May it be that these words have been helpful to give them understanding that God is a judging God, and that we cannot offer the perfection that we must. So our only hope is to turn to Jesus and believe in Him as the Son of God who died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And so, Lord, we thank You for teaching us that man is really, really bad, and that You are really, really angry with sin. But we thank You that Your grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, is really, really powerful. Amen.